going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Greetings and salutations, my friends. A very, very happy Monday. Yeah, the voice is mostly back now. Thank you guys so much for your patience and understanding on Friday. I will tell you it did get worse. But I have to thank you for all of your uh, ideas, all of your game plans, the things that you do to get your voices back on the up and up. I ended up sticking with an old uh, an old favorite, I suppose, although I don't really like the taste of it. It's honey water with uh, hot honey water with a little bit of uh, cinnamon. And then I do the Ricola. Um, it's echinacea lemon, honey lemon uh, cough drops. Seem to work pretty well. Uh, Saturday was, it was not my friend. Uh, it got worse than it was Friday. And I was kind of worried because yesterday, Calgary Hitmen were in action again. Game six of their first round playoff series with the Lethbridge Hurricanes. And Saturday night I went to bed going, I don't know if I'm going to be able to yell into a microphone. Clearly I was able to do it. It went really well and actually drank a whole lot of water pre and during and after the game and woke up this morning going, I just hope that my voice is still here. So again, a big thank you for all of your ideas and all of your input on Friday show. Can you read that recipe to me again? Uh, what you drink? The honey? It's uh, hot water with honey. Yeah, okay. And then just a l- sprinkle of cinnamon. Okay. You know, if you added about an ounce and a half of bourbon, your your voice might have been better by now. Really? I'm just saying it couldn't All have right. hurt. No, it couldn't. I, I, I'll I try that for next time. Do you have a favorite kind of bourbon? Free? Free. <laughs> it doesn't come I often, but no, you know, it's my yeah, favorite. That, that's, that's the best kind of, clearly, well played. Right. I like that. Thank you, Patrick, for that. Uh, on to today's show. Now that I've done enough uh, waxing nostalgic about my, my voice and trying to go through puberty again. HST in Alberta. This is a topic that I wanted to get in on Friday and then things kind of spiraled a little bit. Um, Jack Mintz is going to join us in just a couple of minutes to talk about this whole idea of, hey, if we scale back some of our income tax and pay a consumption tax, is that the way to get this conversation going about a... I know PST is not something that everybody likes to talk about in this province, but Jack's made the case for it in the past. The Alberta Liberals, of all people, threw this as the idea. They came out with maybe one of the more, uh, I'll call it out there ideas, but maybe it's not that out there. So we'll talk to Jack in just a couple of minutes about that. Downtown occupancy rates. We've been talking, this has been a, a hot button topic in this city for the last, I don't know, four years or so, and it's become clearly an election issue. But we're going to talk to Greg Kwong from uh, from the CBRE to uh, Calgary Business Real Estate. I can't remember the exact uh, uh, term there. Uh, But Greg Kwong is regular on this uh, this station to talk about downtown occupancy rates. We'll talk to him about what Q1 saw here in Calgary. Property taxes, the topic of the day at City Hall. Our own Aurelio Perry will be joining us after 5 o'clock to dive more into the discussion at City Hall around that. And wanted to end it on a little bit more of an uplifting note, maybe a note of something that uh, maybe gets you a little bit inspired or at the very least takes you, makes you go, man, that's those are some nice pictures. Will, uh, Will Gad will join us. He's an athlete. He's a, a speaker as well. But he's also tackling ice sheets. Uh, in the name of science and a whole bunch more, the Canmore native will be joining us uh, after 5.30. 
to dive into his latest adventure. And man, oh man, it is a big one. So looking forward to that conversation as well. But we're going to start things off talking HST, PST. What do we need here in Alberta? Or do we need either of them? Jack Mintz joins us next here on Calgary Today. All right, so it's a policy platform that the Alberta Liberals of all parties have come up with, not just adding another tax on top of a tax, but it's almost a common sense approach to this whole notion of, hey, if you're going to get a consumption tax like a PST or an HST, I'm all for it as long as I don't have to contribute as much in the way of income tax. And there's some numbers that they've thrown around in that idea. But Jack Mintz over at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy is joining us now to dive a little bit more into the whole notion uh, because he's written about this pretty thoroughly. Uh, Jack, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Uh, It's my pleasure. Walk us through this whole idea that the liberals have come out with. I mean, it's it feels like it's a little out there, but at the same time, it's it's something that a lot of people have talked about is whether we need to have an HST or a PST or uh, even beyond that is can we get rid of some of this income tax idea? Uh, walk us through the logistics of this and if it does make sense in your books. <laughs> well, uh, first of all, I have to say it makes sense in my books since the proposal is very much based on uh, one that Philip Bazell and I uh, published about five years ago. So so obviously, uh, I'm not going to say that it doesn't make <laughs> sense, but I'm the one that proposed it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the basic idea is, is the following, and that is, um, if Alberta did bring in uh, an HST, which is very simple to do because Albertans are already paying the GST, so what would happen is you'd have a higher tax rate, but then part of it would go to the provincial government rather than going to the federal government. Um, and um, and so if you had an HST, for example, 13%, five points would go to the federal government and eight points would go to the provincial government. Um, the um, But then the question is, what do you do with this revenue, which is quite a bit. We, you know, we estimate around $8 billion. And um, uh, my preference, and this is what the Liberal proposal is largely... Uh, tends to follow from what I understand is that uh, the money would be used to uh, lower personal and corporate taxes. Um, And I would argue that this creates a huge, huge uh, tax advantage for the province um, because uh, corporate and personal taxes are very harmful. They discourage people from working. It discourages savings for people to retire on. uh, And it also discourages investment and risk-taking. And so uh, you know, a, a sales tax actually is much less harmful to the to the economy, and so I think, uh, especially a revenue neutral proposal like this, uh, it would lead to uh, people do paying the HST, but then they would get um, uh, a, they would be get a huge exemption. I think the Liberals had something like fifty seven thousand dollars a person, so it means a family with uh, one hundred and fourteen thousand dollars or less would pay no personal income tax. Uh, there would be a, a low-income tax credit, I, I would assume, in their proposal, uh, so that low-income people wouldn't be hurt by the HST. And um, and uh, the Brits will be paying as much tax as they did before. Um, uh, uh, then, and, I, and the Liberals also would drop the personal income tax rate uh, by a point uh, for all tax um, for all tax brackets, which uh, which is basically the proposal that we had. It, what 
are the challenges or stumbling blocks or are there any when it comes to logistically actually implementing this or is this a pretty simple flick of the switch and and away you go it's uh it's really simple it is it is a slick it is uh it is it is actually very easy to implement and the cost uh, of doing it is very small of course the biggest issue is is would there be a uh, would there be a um, what I would call a uh, uh, you know political um, support for for doing this you know Albertans do resist the sales tax quite a bit. Uh, but I really wish they would get over that because I think they're missing a great opportunity to having a much more growth-oriented tax system if they if they move in this direction. Is that the fear behind it is simply that, hey, I don't want to be paying even more tax, and yet if you add in the whole taking away uh, some of that income tax, all of a sudden it's based on your consumption. It's not based off of what you make. Yes, in fact, it gives people more freedom because if you decide to keep your money uh, and save it for today, you're not going to pay. Um, you're not going to pay tax under a consumption tax. In fact, uh, you have the choice when you want to buy your goods and services over time. Um, but I think the biggest fear that uh, that people have argued against bringing in another tax is, uh, and this can equally apply to the carbon tax, is that governments will then use it to milk more revenue from uh, taxpayers because then they have not just the uh, sales tax, but then they can also bring back personal income taxes or, or, or whatever, and then people are going to be hit with a lot of taxes. But I think that, I think is a is a different set of issues, uh, as we've seen in this election campaign. The NDP did bring in a carbon tax that uh, is almost like a, a sales tax in the sense that it hits everything, uh, and um, and uh, it. Uh, it hasn't been very popular, and of course we now have a party running against it, and the tax may be disbanded. How important would it be, should a government decide to talk about this, is be as open and transparent about uh, where the money is going to? As you mentioned, you don't want it necessarily to just go into general revenues and, and become that uh, the cash cow. You want it to be something where it's revenue neutral, where there is an evening out based off of, hey, if you're, you know, the, the personal income tax is, is being lessened, therefore you can spend more. Uh, yes, no, I, I think, you know, if there was a way of uh, governments guaranteeing it, you know, maybe a legislative uh, change, uh, you know, and you make it that, you know, it can't be changed unless there's, a, you know, maybe 75% vote in the legislature mm-hmm. to, to make the changes, something like that, uh, you know, so that down the road it's harder to do. Uh, you know, Alberta doesn't have a constitution, but you could have a referendum on this kind of thing, but I don't, you know, uh, but uh, I think uh, it's, it, it is a tough sale in Alberta right now. As I understand it, probably three-quarters of the public would be against bringing in the sales tax. Uh, although I think if they were asked the question, if you don't pay any more personal income tax, how would you feel? Uh, and that's uh, you know that's a different kind of question, and I don't know anyone's ever asked that kind of question. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the, the carbon tax. I want to touch on that just briefly here, and, and a lot of people have been talking about uh, Jason Kenney and the UCP saying, hey, we're going to repeal the provincial version of it. And I am curious from, from your standpoint, as you watch over what's going on, of course, in other provinces today, it's being implemented on a, on a federal stage, and I'm wondering, what would be, would there be benefits to Albertans to repeal the provincial tax only to have the federal tax come into effect? Well, I think, uh, <laughs> um, well, certainly if you 
bring in uh, a federal tax to replace the provincial carbon tax, your, your, uh, the only thing that will change will be the rate because the federal rate starts at $28 uh, instead of $30 this year, although it will uh, rise up to $50 by uh, 1920, uh, sorry, by 2022. Um, so I think that's, uh, you know, that's, in that sense, it's just a, a swap. Uh, I think the big difference, though, is that uh, all the money is going to go into rebates, uh, you know, the federal uh, money, which is different than what the NDP does with the money, because uh, the NDP does pay rebates um, only for those families with a certain amount of inc- family income, less than, um, I forget the number now, but, uh, you know, there's a threshold on that. Um, and then there's a, a lot of money that goes into various things like uh, uh, green subsidies and uh, you know, and uh, you know, and some other expenditures, uh, and uh, the uh, the government has said that uh, in the future it plans to use uh, carbon tax revenue for the general budget, which is uh, a lot different uh, as well. So it could go into other spending. So, so it is a uh, you know, people aren't aren't getting all the money back uh, as in the federal case, and so it's kind of interesting how people would look at it. Maybe they like the federal plan better mm-hmm. uh, because at least all the money is rebated directly back to households, uh, including the tax that businesses are going to pay. Um, that's going to get rebated to households uh, to a large extent as well. I wanted to ask one more question just about this. Uh, the carbon tax has been obviously a focal point in this election campaign. Uh, the UCP saying, hey, we're going uh, we're, we're to say, nope, no more provincial. We'll let the feds do the, the dirty work. Is there any positives to having the provincial sales, uh, provincial carbon tax versus a federal carbon tax? Uh, only to the extent that uh, maybe you could use the revenue to cut corporate and personal taxes, which I think would be even better than just the rebate system. Um, but, uh, you know, I think there's another issue I think we have to be asking, and that is, you know, I've always been an advocate of carbon taxation uh, going back a long time uh, because it, on the argument, and just about every economist says this, is that, is that uh, carbon tax is more efficient because you put a price on carbon and you don't get the government trying to pick technologies. Instead, the market will figure out how what's the best way of trying to avoid the carbon tax. Uh, by adopting various technologies or, or actions to, to avoid it. Um, and that makes a lot of sense. The problem is is that, uh, the, you know, at the federal level uh, and at the provincial level, we're seeing uh, carbon taxes being put on top of all the regulations that currently exist. There's no, there's no attempt to, re- to eliminate any of those costly regulations and subsidies. Uh, instead, we just rely on this car. You know, we just have all that plus... Uh, the structure of the carbon tax. And that raises, I think, a serious question about what we're trying to achieve. Because if we're not going to go to a low-cost low solution to try to reduce emissions, uh, then what's the point? You know, if, if a government wants to do regulations, you know, why not? Because it's hard to see what the carbon tax is offering uh, beyond what the regulations are doing, uh, given, the, you know, given, the, uh, given the way that it's being uh, handled at this point right now in Canada. A lot of questions around taxes, and I think Jack has been able to uh, to answer a few of them for sure. Uh, Jack, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you.
It has been one of the topics of discussion as we've headed into, we're now into almost week two or week three, I've already lost count, of this provincial election campaign. A lot of people looking at that empty space in downtown Calgary saying, hey, when when are things going to actually pick up around here? Well, we're getting a little bit of an indicator from CBRE Alberta Regional Managing Director Greg Kwong joining us now on the program. Greg, thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for inviting me. What is what does your latest report seem to indicate about uh, Calgary's downtown office office vacancy rate? Well, surprisingly, good news. We we uh, uh, if you look at the year end of uh, 2018, we we touched on about 28 percent vacancy rate, and uh, since then we've uh, recovered to about a 26.5 percent vacancy rate. So uh, you know, I, I think people don't act much differently whether it's 28 or 26.5. But it's good news that we haven't. Uh, proceeded with the, the further freefall into the 30s. So it's, it's uh, a, a, a small bright light for us. Any ideas as to what has led to that little bit of uh, good news? Um, both supply and demand have, have helped it to contribute to that. On the supply side, there hasn't been any new construction uh, over the last uh, three to four months, so that, that helps. And previous to that, over the last three years, we delivered towers like Telesky and the Manulife building and things like that. So the supply side took care of that. And then on the demand side, we found that um, I think the, the, the dramatic layoffs that we saw over the last two or three years has, has seemed to have ceased. So, um, and, and, and there is a little bit of hiring, but still, still not great. But, uh, but the combination of both the supply and the demand managed to uh, carve away uh, 1.5%. One of the questions that was brought up over the weekend, and I'm curious from your standpoint if you can a- a- answer this one, is when it comes to the amount of space that was built over the last number of years, and there was it seemed to be this race to build the tallest building almost for Calgary. Um, was it a problem of we were building too much without enough uh, tenants in place? Was that part of the problem, or was it just hey the the conditions uh, backed a lot of companies off of possibly going into those spaces? I think the biggest issue is it usually takes to, to build a, a major skyscraper like Brookfield Place. Um, uh, it, it's from from the date you start planning to the date you actually open it. It's about four years. So I think at the time that all these uh, new buildings were, you know, created as far as a, a plan on paper, to the date they were actually delivered, the world can completely changed. Uh, I think the decisions to, to start construction on these buildings, the oil was trading at just over a hundred dollars a barrel, and by the time they were completed, uh, oil touched on I think twenty-five to thirty dollars a barrel. <clears throat> so, and and uh, a lot of the a lot of the companies that were building these buildings did have lead tenants in place. However, though, even those lead tenants felt the brunt and, and were trying to sublease the space even before they got on the market. Talk about the usage and are companies coming up with different ideas on how to use some of this space and kind of wrapping their heads now around what exactly is available in downtown Calgary? Um, as far as the landlords are concerned, uh, we've got basically three classes, A, B, and C class. The, the A buildings uh, are owned by major pension funds, major institutions that really haven't needed to repurpose their buildings. The B class and C class, they're they're really limited to their the, how they're built uh, in in that they are a square floor plate, so it really doesn't lend itself to repurposing to say a multifamily building. Although we have seen one or two uh, properties sell to developers who plan to build either a hotel or a um, apartment building, so it's it's happening, but just just 
small dribs and drabs. Mm, so from that standpoint, is there anything to glean on from Q1 that we can look ahead to Q2 and beyond and say, hey, this is maybe a sign of things to come? I think uh, it, under normal circumstances uh, in, in a year, yeah, I would say that the first quarter would, would indicate um, and, and if you could extrapolate, it would predict the, the rest of the year. But unfortunately, we have two major hurdles, those being a provincial and a federal election, which I think will dictate more what's going to happen in the year than um, what's happened in the last three months. Is that something that would be almost factored in? Is it with uh, with the rise in Q1 is maybe there's this, hey, let's get ahead of the curve before uh, before demand goes up in case we do get a uh, a change in government on the provincial side? Oh, absolutely. But but um, the majority of the people that we're seeing, um, and this is more from investors looking to place more capital, uh, whether they grow their own company or, or buy a company or buy, buy real estate, um, those people are kind of waiting uh, certainly for the next, until April 16th to find out what happens. Um, I, I just think the policies for both parties seem to be diametrically opposed. So I think um, I'm probably justified that some people just wait in the sidelines for, for a couple of weeks. How much of an impact is the federal election, in your estimation, going to have on uh, the confidence surrounding downtown Calgary? Um, I, I actually think it'd be it's more uh, more of a dramatic impact on our economy than the provincial election, quite frankly, um, and and that's more as a result of uh, you know approval of pipelines um, and and really uh, be, turning Canada back into a, a business friendly. Um, nation, we we I, I think on a, I travel a lot globally, and and certainly uh, with my company being a global company, they we've got a lot of readings that uh, there's a lot of capital just not coming to Canada just because of the uh, time it takes to uh, get things approved here. On the municipal side, I know that there's been a lot of talk about shifting the tax burden from businesses to uh, non-residential to residential, and I'm curious with what you've report or what you've released today. Is that almost a, a, the way that the city's reacting? Is it almost too early of a move to shift it when, in theory, if things start to go up, uh, all of a sudden you've got uh, too much burden on the residential and not enough almost on the, on non-residential? Yeah, I think, um, no, I think it's the city's, uh, their timing is couldn't have been better for to address this issue. Um, I think over the last couple of years, it's, Kind of uh, the city, I mean, has been saying, "Okay, wait, let's let's wait and see about next year. Next year could be better. Next year could be better." I think it's just a, a realization that uh, this is the new normal, and we're and we, the city, are going to have to figure out a way to distribute the tax burden to uh, other parties, other people, um, because we have been relying on such a successful downtown core in the past. It, it's just uh, again uh, the new normal. What kinds of things have to align to get us back to somewhere where we're not talking 26 or 28, but we're talking, you know, 10 or 15 or <laughs> what is best case scenario over maybe the next five years? Yeah, I think um, I've said this before is, is that uh, the, the high vacancy rate in the downtown core is, is really a symptom. It's not a disease. The, the disease is unemployment. Mm-hmm. And um, to answer your question, I think we need to hire back about 45,000 people so that they're working in the downtown Corrigan and we'll get back to a, a normalized vacancy rate of 8 to 10%. Mm-hmm. Greg, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Nice talking to you. Thank you. Greg Kwong, the Regional Managing Director of CBRE Alberta, as they've released their Q1 2019 office and industrial stats showing...
It seems like the downtown vacancy rates dropped a little bit from 28 to about 26 and a half. And like he said, it's kind of a small dip, but at the very least, it's a sign that maybe there is something happening. Q2 might prove us completely wrong, too. So we'll have to see how uh, how that all transpires. The debate rages on at City Hall over the shift in tax burden between the residential and non-residential properties here in Calgary. Uh, council talking about this and uh, sitting atop City Council Chambers is our own Aurelio Perry. Aurelio, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. Give us a little bit of a background here. I know it's been a contentious issue is who can shoulder what kind of burden here, but what is the crux of the debate right now? Oh, right now they're trying to, well, unfortunately, they've got eight scenarios in front of them, and that's really gumming up the works here. Uh, If they were presented with just two or three, but they have eight things to look over. So I think what you're seeing is people like pieces of some and not pieces of the other, that type of thing. So uh, I think what you're seeing is that what they'll likely wind up doing is approving a tax rate for this year, uh, which is expected that you have to do it now because you got to get the, uh, I guess, uh, everything in the works so that the bills can the bill bills mm-hmm. can be made out, mailed out, sorry, and then be paid by the end of June, that type of thing. So the stuff about uh, tax shifting to non-residential, residential, maybe that for the future years can be discussed again more fulsome in the next few months that possibly could happen here right now they've gone uh, where else would they have gone behind closed doors <laughs> for some uh, legal advice on some a couple of issues um one of the proposals they're looking at right now was the mayor's uh proposal which talks about setting up a uh, a two-year business grant program where assistance program where small businesses who are faced with the high taxes and maybe impacts of high minimum wage, they can apply to get a portion of that funding covered by this business grant, which is valued about $35 million each year. And instead of giving this rebate the way they've done the past couple of years where it didn't flow down to the businesses, the businesses could go and apply for this grant if they it's approved and set up. And also, again, there's a shift to making the difference between what non-residential and residential ratepayers, uh, the, currently the rate difference is between one and four or four to one, the difference, making that closer together so it's more evenly matched. And so there'd be a bit of a, a bit of a hit on the residential homeowners, but some of that could be handled with some rebates to homeowners versus giving the, you know, doing it the other way around keeping the taxes higher for businesses and giving them the one-time rebates. What kind of dollar figures are we looking at in terms of what the city is trying to, I don't want to call it recoup, but at the same time, they certainly want to try to make up for some lost ground because of downtown vacancy rates and those kinds of issues. Well, the one thing is, is that the city is not going to be out this money. It's basically what they have to, what the city has to find is this $257 million, which would be coming out of your big high profile, high priced office towers, uh, because their property values have dropped dramatically. Uh, they're not paying as much tax. So in this market assessment world that we have, market value assessment world, that $257 million gets spread out to all the other businesses. 
And so that's the thing. So the city isn't losing the money. The city will get their money. But the uh, pain is being inflicted to all the other businesses outside the core who haven't faced these steep uh, property value drops. When it comes to the city's rainy day fund, what is that thing sitting at now? And could that help the burden at all? Yeah, that thing's at about, uh, I believe, $600 million or so. And part of that's been tapped for the four major projects. However, uh, it was Councillor Peter DeMong who earlier in the debate said, hey, what did this fiscal sustainability fund, what was it previously called? And it used to be called the Mill Rate Stabilization Fund. Right. Which, you know, the mill rate is the property tax rate. So he's saying, hey, let's use it for what it was intended for. And so he's proposing, you know, using more of that mill rate stabilization fund to cushion the blow for everybody. Mm-hmm. Any ideas yet? I know they're in camera now, but have you gotten a sense yet of the room as to where they might be swaying after over these eight different options? Oh, that's the trouble. There's way too many options to figure out where anybody is on this. I think everybody, everybody, I think, is in agreement that they have to reduce the hit on the businesses. And how do they, how do they shift that onto the residents without making it uh, unbearably tough for some of the residences, right? Because mm-hmm. if you did this in one shot, you know, a homeowner could be facing an extra $500 a year or so. So they're trying to look at how do you cushion that? Uh, do you do some rebates? The fact is that the rebates over three or four years, if you do it that way, after that fourth year, all of a sudden, there'll be quite the sticker shock when you get your bill. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Global News reporter Aurelio Perry, our City Hall correspondent. Thanks so much for the time, as always, Aurelio. You're welcome, Joe. Canmore resident Will Gadd has been getting himself a lot of attention over the last few months with some of his climbs of some of the biggest ice sheets in the world, including in Greenland, of all places. He's also, he's a guide. He is a speaker. He is also kind of just an adventurist. He's an athlete as well. And the story kind of came across the desk and we thought, you know what, we should talk to Will about his feats to this point and what some of these all mean to him. And so he joins us now on the program to talk about some of those largest ice sheets in the world. Will, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for having me on. What does it feel like to scale a glacier or to scale something as massive as you did? Well, the, the scaling part is a lot of fun. I always like the climbing part, but the wild part is being underneath the Greenland ice cap with, you know, hundreds of meters of ice over your head in a very remote place. And yeah, it feels maybe a little bit like being more on the boot than, than any place I, I know of normally, but it's uh, you're doing real exploration. So it's a pretty cool thing. What prompted this particular expedition? It's been a kind of a long story, but the short version is I've been caving my whole life and I started doing some work in glacial caves up on the Athabasca Glacier, just for grins, really. I was just curious what's down those holes down there in the ice where rivers pour into the glacier. And we've done some ice climbing down those holes, and I got curious what's down there. And and, uh, then ended up doing some work with a professor at the University of Alberta, Martin Sharp, great guy. And that led to discovering new life forms down there, like things that people haven't studied before that live in glaciers. And all of a sudden, I realized that these glaciers were not just cold, sterile places, but they're alive with all kinds of life that lives in the ice, basically enough. And there's 
there's holes in there and caves in there. And then uh, one thing led to another, and, and I got involved in a research project in Greenland. And uh, then, yeah, now <laughs> then I ended up down a hole in the Greenland ice cap. So it was, it was an interesting evolution, I guess. I, I suppose so. And I suppose you probably came across a few surprises along the way as well. Anything that really made you go, whoa? I, I think just understanding that glaciers aren't these sterile places like there's a lot of stuff that lives inside glaciers and then they're riddled with holes there's i like swiss cheese in there and to me that that was pretty interesting and as an explorer you're going to a place that nobody's ever been before it's it's guaranteed nobody's ever been down into these into these systems before so it's real exploration you can't look at it on a google map you don't know what's going on and then the opportunity to actually do some science down there was cool but when it comes right down to it these places are some of the most stunning places you can ever imagine it's like being inside a giant cathedral of ice and near the surface there's blue light coming through it's just you go down in there it's a pretty cool day no matter how you look at it what does it mean to you to be a part of something where it's not just the adventure part but also the science part and being able to kind of wed the two in the way that you guys did well, I mean, the, the, for me, the cool thing was to be able to help with science. And I think at their rawest form, science and exploration kind of go together. It's like, what's out there? And nobody really knew the answer on the Greenland ice cap. And that was the first question is, what are these, you know, these are holes that are formed by rivers pouring down into the ice and then going to the bed surface of the glacier and, and you know, helping the glacier move toward the ocean, which kind of has implications for sea level and, and everything else. But nobody even knew what was down there or how they worked. So um, the guys working with a guy named um, Professor Jason Gully and I rappel into one of these things. And, and my job as a guide and athlete is to help him move around down there and evaluate risks and run a little bit of risk management. But uh, we don't know what's down there. It, it, it's just pretty cool to this at this stage in kind of life and, and how much we know about the world to just going to some place that we have no idea how it works. It's, pretty, it's just a great thing. Absolutely. What got you into this in the first place? Um, like, you know, I grew up in the mountains and, and did a bunch of caving, and I, I just love this idea of going places that nobody's ever been before. And then being out on glaciers and looking into these holes in the ice where the, where the rivers are just pouring down into them and, and wondering what's down there. They're really scary places when you look at them in summer. You've got like a this roaring river disappearing into blackness and you got to kind of wonder <laughs> what's down there and, and how does it work? And I think for me, it's always been curiosity, you know, whether I'm flying my paraglider or, or anything I've done that's interesting in life, it's like, how does it work? And, uh, and, and what's going on. And so, yeah, it just, it just grew from that curiosity really into what it is now. And I'm very lucky to go places with really smart people who understand our world really well and, and help them do their research. You've done and climbed a lot of crazy things. I'm wondering if you've ever had any reservations about the things that you do. Well, I think if you don't have reservations doing what I, you know, what I'm doing, something's probably wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> you really should. If you're, if you're looking a hundred meters straight down into a hole in the ice and you're not a little bit afraid, then probably there's a programming missing in your brain. But um, for me, that's that's a sign, right? Like, you should be afraid. So how does it work, and what are you afraid of, and why? And can you break it down into usable components and use that fear to, to stay sharp, right? Like, it's, it's like driving on ice. You want to focus and be like, all right, let's keep the speed slow and take these steps to make sure we're not uh, orbiting into the ditch. Only I just don't want to fall 100-plus meters to my to my dube down the hole, so the stakes are, are also pretty high. 
Is that the fun or is that the the challenging part of it is uh, trying to make sure that you're doing everything in a calculated way? Because I think sometimes when you see the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, you're just about there. You almost want to rush to get there because you can't wait. But at the same time, you need to be extra cautious in those final final steps and final bounds. Yeah, exactly. You, you, and that's the, when you're in any kind of high consequence environment, and you know, that's where I work and live with, with the teams I take into these places, whether they're film teams or I'm guiding or on my own, you've got it exactly right. It's the, it's the situations where you've done it a lot and the consequences start to seem pretty abstract. You know, it's like driving fast and you get away with texting once and then you get away with it again, but it doesn't change the fact that it's a really high consequence thing to do. And, in that environment, you have to keep your actions based around the consequence, not your comfort with the environment. But yeah, you're exactly right. You, you've got to keep checking systems and, and understanding what's going on and lifeguarding each other. And uh, it's yeah, super important stuff. So yeah, you're right. Keep tight. Keep sharp. What kinds of advice would you have for those who look at what you do and go, I want to do that one day? Well, don't do that would be, <laughs> you know, like what I, what I do, I've been doing it for a lifetime and, uh, and, and working hard to develop the skills to survive in these environments. And even then, sometimes I don't think it's a good idea, but it, it is interesting. And, and I do think adding to our knowledge base is how the planet works and how quickly the Greenland ice sheet is moving toward the ocean. I mean, this is, this is a big deal. Maybe not here in Alberta in terms of, uh, of sea level rise, mm. but, but globally. And so I, I think all of this is worth it. Um, but it, it does take a lot of training, a lot of time, and then also resources. You know, it's, there's a paper coming out of this that'll be published in one of the big scientific journals, but you know, is Red Bull that paid for this and, mm. It's not cheap. Everything in Greenland is like four times the cost. And, and um, it's just, you know, I appreciate it. I, I, I'm lucky. It, 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 it takes a lot to have an opportunity like this. And I'm, I've been lucky to have the, the training and skill of life to get in there. But I don't recommend it. The idea of cave diving under the Greenland ice cap is a bad idea. Let's just put that out there right now. <laughs> But at the same time, it did come up with some real good photos that I'll uh, post a link to on my Twitter because, man, oh, man, I look at them and I'm just in awe. And so it begs the question, what's next for you? Well, a few things. There's been a couple of spin-outs from that, from that trip to Greenland where um, there are more questions to be answered. And, and the professor actually got a, uh, a grant from the National Science Foundation to go back to Greenland and continue the work we were doing there. Um, it was promising, really promising what we did. And it does have real implications for, for how we understand the Greenland ice cap. So I'm going to go back uh, this coming fall and, and help him with that project and then a couple of other smaller projects. And uh, then I've got a trip to go see stack Clybig in Tasmania and a bunch of stuff more locally here as well. Um, we just did the, just climbed the highest waterfall in Canada a couple of weeks ago. So. Oh, yeah been a kind of crazy winter it's been really good that's well, uh it's a lot of fun it's uh, and like i said the the pictures speak a thousand words i think but i'm glad that we were able to uh to connect and give a little bit of a radio visual so to speak <laughs> on on your adventures and some of the work that you've been involved in will thanks so much for joining us this afternoon thank you for having me on have a great day if you want to follow him on twitter and his adventures at g-i-l-w-a-d this is a place to go to find Will Gad, Canmore athlete, speaker, adventurist, and much, much more. Obviously, a lot of fun. Great conversation there. Uh, this is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. 
just want to take a moment to thank you for taking the time to download and listen to the Calgary Today podcast. Don't forget to subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We'll chat with you soon. Thank you.